Part 2. Spiritual Autobiography By telling you the story of my life thus far, I hope to accomplish two goals. When you read about the messy roundabout trail I took, maybe you'll see how to get out of the mud faster than I did and climb onto a dry, safe road. When you read how Divine Providence has given me wonderful adventures, I hope you'll feel reassured and inspired to keep rolling forward. Incarnating 1969-1976 Born Psychic Why did God choose to have me born in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the United States of America? Not for the winter, I'm sure. Temperatures usually drop to negative 40 degrees at least once during every year. That's the kind of cold where it hurts the nostrils to inhale. Maybe I was born there to enjoy the spring. Minnesota is a kingdom of ice castles from November until April, and then the Queen of May rolls up her sleeves and gets to work, producing the most luscious, verdant, flower-filled wonderland possible. I was born in May, and that's still my favorite month. The clouds make mountains in the sky. The grass spreads out like a bed of green feathers, and the lilacs intoxicate you as you walk past. Minnesota means land of sky-colored waters in the language of the Native Americans who lived there before the Europeans came, mostly in the 1800s. Most of my ancestors arrived from Ireland in the 1850s, escaping the potato famine that caused Ireland to lose one-third of its population. My people came over poor but literate, and gradually climbed the occupational ladder from farmer, tavern owner, and maid, to lawyers, teachers, and lumberyard owners. However, that refugee feeling stuck. Having been to 43 countries and counting, every time I'm standing in the line to get my passport stamped, I still feel tremors, as if I'm fleeing some terror. It's in my blood. Minnesota is now home to refugees and settlers from many regions of the world, including Mexico, Somalia, Bosnia, Russia, Laos, and Thailand. As an adult, I eventually taught English to immigrants, and it made me humble and happy that my neighbors represented so many languages and cultures. Growing up, connecting to God outside of church occurred sometimes in nature, while admiring his creation of the 10,000 lakes and the crystals in the skies. The most haunting sound I heard as a child was when we traveled up north for an annual stay at a cabin in the woods. There I heard the cry of the loon, a diving bird that cackles like a banshee in the night. But God or angels speaking to an individual would be considered outlandish and unbelievable. Though a polite Minnesotan would probably just comment, well, that's different. My childhood version of Minneapolis was a secure, walk-home-by-yourself city with a park every few blocks. Tall elm trees lined my street. Their branches met at the top, creating a green Gothic cathedral. I played in the roots of the elm in front of our house, arranging and rearranging colored pebbles and smooth fragments of glass I found in the street. It kept me occupied for hours. I was safe outside, just playing alone or riding bikes with my siblings. No fences, no walls. It was the ideal of a normal childhood. My mystical experiences were personal. From the time I was born, I was looking for answers, for a higher meaning, and most of all, for my personal mission. For example, when I was four years old, a bat injured its wing and sprawled on the sidewalk in the middle of the afternoon. I ran up and down the street, shouting for the neighbors. It was important. 
I had to warn them. From three years old till the age of seven, I spent time in our backyard. I went into the far corner where there were ferns and moss and overhanging bushes. The air was heavy with mist. I felt I could communicate with the fairies. I couldn't see them. I couldn't hear them. But this was a magic corner, and I felt a sense of mystery there. The tiny bells of the lilies of the valley shone white against the velvety black carpet of moss. The minutes I passed here felt like days, and I lost all sense of self. I was the oldest of five children, all born within eight years. We had many happy times together, and because we were so close in age, we all learned the same songs and saw the same films, such as Star Wars and Walt Disney's Robin Hood. Running up and down the stairs, singing and dancing, sometimes life at home even seemed as though we were in our own musical movie. We attended the same Catholic grade school and high school, and although we had distinct personalities, we shared similar senses of humor, often based on wordplay. Language was always high priority around the Walbrand dinner table. We argued over etymologies and raced to the dictionary to prove one definition was correct. When I was six, I asked my parents if I could take an after-school class in French, and as usual they agreed, they were extremely supportive in terms of academics. My heart burst open and I fell in love with French, even though, as I recall, we just saw a slideshow of Paris, waved little flags, and ate croissants. But as soon as I could say bonjour, I felt like a sophisticated citoyen du monde, and I wanted to see the world now. My dad was an attorney, a federal prosecutor, and my mother was educated as a scientist and went on to do two more master's degrees while we were young. Academic rigor was a high priority in the family. My parents did right by us in so many ways, and we knew we were loved. They opened up our worldviews early, especially in terms of arts and culture. We knew every museum in town. The Classic Science Museum, the Minneapolis Children's Theater, the more obscure Swedish Institute. We were quite into activities. I spent many a happy Saturday afternoon watching a hot air balloon race, or attending a play, or gazing at modern paintings at the Walker. We also got to see other parts of the country, unusual in the 1970s. We took two family trips to California, and when I felt the mysterious quiet in those Spanish mission churches, I knew I would go back there someday. I was only eight years old. I tiptoed through the inner courtyards and encountered the bird of paradise flower, the Strelitzia. It was the most exotic and beautiful thing I'd ever seen. 1976 to 1983. Minneapolis, Minnesota, schooling. When I was five in kindergarten, I wrote the Christmas song for our class. The teacher said, who has the first line? And I came up with one, and then she asked for the second line, and I called it out with good rhyme and meter, and I volunteered every time until the song was complete. At the time, I was proud of myself, but now I see that I didn't have firm boundaries. I could have given other people more of a chance. Sometimes the other kids treated me as if I were a real weirdo, but at the same time they recognized that I was intelligent. One girl in my first grade class sent me a Valentine's Day card printed for the teacher. When I returned it to her, thinking she had made a mistake, she affirmed, but you were the one who taught me to read. The kids allowed me grudging respect but little social approval. I didn't try hard, to be honest. My shirt wasn't tucked in and my socks didn't match, didn't comb my hair. A poster child for attention deficit disorder. 
My desk was so crammed full of crumpled papers and broken crayons, I could never find my homework. I lost pencils, library books, and sweaters, as if I were a magnet with its poles reversed. My personal life was sometimes difficult, and I often felt sad, standing on the playground and staring through the chain-link fence where the honeysuckles grew. Yet the lesson I learned was fierce sympathy for the oppressed. I distinctly remember my teacher saying, Only people who have found Jesus will go to heaven. Surprising everyone, including myself, I burst into tears and cried out, What about the pagans? Waving my hand in the air as if getting my teacher's attention would save their souls from hellfire, I cried out, It's just not fair. What if they're good people? With raised eyebrows but a calm voice, the teacher quickly recalled that God is a merciful God and will judge everyone on his deeds. I slumped back into my desk, but folded my arms against any God who might do otherwise. Because I sensed so strongly that there was an invisible world, I constantly sought evidence. Where was the doorway? I checked the closet, but unlike in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, behind our coats and boots there was no entrance to Narnia. Looking for inspiration and friendship, when I was six years old, I started reading the biographies of famous people. The librarian, Sister Mary Loretto, pointed out a series about strong individuals, and I read through book after book. I especially looked up to heroines like the Native American Sacagawea, who helped the explorers Lewis and Clark chart the path to the Pacific Ocean, as well as Joan of Arc, the patron saint of France. Joan died for her beliefs, and she led France to victory against England after hearing the divine voices. I wanted to be a saint. It doesn't mean that I managed to behave like one, but at least I set the intention. 1983 to 1987, St. Louis Park, Minnesota, high school, low school. Like my primary school, my high school was Catholic, but religion was a class to pass, not mysticism. Religion meant ethics and good behavior, but not direct contact or messages from God. To speak of such things would have seemed, again, irrational to these Minneapolis, western suburban youth destined for success. It was an upper-middle-income, all-white school, save for three black students in each class of 240. Conformity smelled like double mint gum and peach shampoo. After the first year, I refused to color-coordinate my signature outfit was a mishmash of vintage clothes that I loved for their texture rather than their patterns, a soft black-and-white striped referee shirt, and a green silk brocade skirt from the 1950s that swirled out a circular meter and metallic gold square-dancing shoes. Luckily, I found camaraderie in a small group of friends loosely centered on the quiz bowl team. Becca, Deanna, Hugh, Bob, Catherine, Tom, Paul, Matt, Martin... We competed against other high schools in obscure knowledge of trivia. It was my first experience on the radio and on TV when we appeared live in matches against other schools, ringing the buzzer and answering questions like, What is the capital of Botswana? I loved interrupting the quizmaster in the middle of the question. We knew there was more to life than accumulating facts, but by mastering those details, we were preparing ourselves to master greater meaning. High school was also a game to play, my friends decided. We played by the rules and built up knowledge, but wisdom lay in experience, not test scores. So we might as well ace all the tests along the way and then take over the world. Or at least that was the plan. Today, among my former quizmates, you can find a published poet, a children's book author, 
a major in the U.S. Army specializing in intelligence, an educational specialist, a physicist who has taught at Cambridge, and an investment wizard in San Francisco. My specialty was languages. I soared through my classes in high school. At 18, I took the National French test and came in seventh place in Minnesota. And for my graduation, my parents said I could go to France for two weeks with my best friend Becca. She and I also signed up for a summer school course in Chinese through the Minneapolis public school system. Our teacher was a young woman whose doctor parents had been relocated to the countryside during the Cultural Revolution. And so she taught us not only the basics of the language, but also a live perspective on recent world history. Becca was a natural poet, a dark, curly-haired, beautiful girl with a passionate genius that she hid from everyone. I poured out my heart to her, and we ate dozens of donuts and watched many foreign films at the Uptown Movie Theater, glad to be apart from the oppressive sameness of the copycat world we were forced to endure. Despite that comfort and companionship, I still suffered depression. I frequently got sick of playing by the rules, and even my friends couldn't help. Between the ages of 14 and 18, I got into plenty of trouble because I perceived what the teachers wanted, but I hated conforming. Part of me strongly wanted to excel, to achieve personal perfection, to get straight A's, and to sing in every school musical. Part of me wanted to rebel, to lead a revolution, to get drunk, and cause a ruckus. I did both. In my most rambunctious period, I got myself suspended from school once for drinking heavily at a dance at 15 and once for protesting because the school would not celebrate the new federal holiday of Martin Luther King Jr. Day in memory of that great African-American leader. Psychic abilities? My beliefs grew even stronger in my adolescence. The mystics intrigued me further. I read the lives of the saints. I wrote a paper on, quote, the Bantu religions of South Africa, quote, not knowing I would later live there and meet those practitioners face to face. I studied the Tao with the vague hope I would one day visit China. I wept my way through the diary of Anne Frank and ate up all the books by Chaim Potok, including The Chosen, and I felt very Jewish. I wondered if I could learn to levitate like St. Teresa or to walk on water like Jesus. At 14, in the Catholic Sacrament of Confirmation, when one becomes an adult in the Church, I took the name of St. Joan of Arc. I did believe in angels and saints, and I prayed, and I participated in Mass, and was a reader at the services. I always have believed in an intervening and loving God, and the journals I kept from the time I was able to write have documented my dialogue with God, mostly appeals to Him to help me become a perfect person, and, by the way, could I please have a boyfriend? Apparently, his answer was, no. As for the occult, I read books at our Carnegie Brick Public Library on all kinds of subjects, including automatic writing, UFO contact, and seeing ghosts. It was those books that drew me upstairs from the children's room into the quiet chapel of the grown-up library. I tried the experiments in the books, gazing into a candle, holding a pen, and asking for messages, but nothing worked. Disappointing. I was convinced that I had the ability and the sensitivity to tune in. What I didn't realize was that I lacked the maturity. Nowadays, people speak of IQ for academic skills and EQ for emotional intelligence. My friends understood the difference, but we didn't have any mentorship to help us bridge the gap. 1985, St. Louis Park and Golden Valley, Minnesota, 
my friend takes his own life. The most striking event of my high school years was the death of my good friend Matt. He took his own life when he was 17 and I was 15. Short, wiry, with thick glasses, Matt knew every lyric from every Beatles song. He started his own magazine, The Minnesota Science Fiction Reader, and he roped me in as the sub-editor. An original member of the Quiz Bowl team, Matt was a mad writer, a sensitive character, and perhaps not made for this world. We had been close friends long enough for me to realize he was quite troubled, but I thought his pain was the gloom of adolescence, not dark enough for him to go through with his frequent suicidal threats. Matt left me the note. I had heard him say once again, I just can't live through this, when our high school principal fired him from being the editor-in-chief of our newspaper for inappropriate language. Matt had made a crass joke, asking students to keep the cafeteria clean, why don't you? Throw away your pop cans, your candy wrappers, and your used prophylactics, please, kids. Getting fired was a real dent to his ego, but more than that, I believe Matt could not see himself in the future. If he had just made it into university, he would have thrived and survived. Instead, he got stuck. He handed me a note just as I got on the school bus to go home. He drove to his house and phoned me from there and asked if I had homework and play rehearsal, normal stuff. Then, just before he hung up, he said, Goodbye, Shannon Walbran. My full name. According to the police estimates, he then hung up the phone, put on the Beatles' white album, shot himself, and died instantly. His note asked me to tell his story, as Horatio tells Hamlet's after the Prince of Denmark dies. Matt added, Of course, I'm no prince, and I don't even like Danishes. If I learned anything from Matt's death, of reading at his memorial service, attending his funeral, and seeing his dad struggle to see through the tears. It would be like what R.E.M.'s Michael Stipe says in the song Everybody Hurts. Just hold on. Things change. It may not feel better, but it will be different. Wait. See what happens. Even though he had warned us, Matt's departure devastated me. I shut myself in my room for months and listened to the same records over and over. His death made everything else seem superficial. I felt lonely, and I wanted even more to escape. The ordinary was the enemy he had fought, but in his personal war, he hadn't found love or meaning. I desperately needed one or the other myself. 1967 to 1987, Minneapolis, Minnesota, is sensitivity a gift or a curse? I'm inserting this chapter here because throughout my childhood I had emotional and physical challenges that I later figured out. If I had known earlier what to do, it's possible I could have reached my potential at a younger age. Children and adults are sometimes diagnosed with problems, or diseases we call special needs. I've been thinking lately about whether people's syndromes or diseases could be gifts that haven't been fully utilized yet. I believe my particular gift as a spirit guide interpreter is related to such needs. I've read scientific journals and magazines about certain syndromes that relate to the gift I have. One is called sensory processing disorder. There are many different manifestations of this disorder. This is the kind of kid you might have seen who can't touch itchy or scratchy things. This is the kind of kid who can't be set down on the grass because it's too prickly. The kind of kid who complains that the label in the back of the t-shirt is bugging the back of his neck. He cries because of it. I was that kid. I couldn't be set down on the grass. I was the kid who didn't want to put my face in the water when we went swimming. 
I always felt that my clothes were too tight, too itchy. I needed to wear 100% cotton because anything that had a mixture of polyester irritated me. I felt hot and claustrophobic. The gift of this disorder is that as a spirit guide interpreter, I easily receive messages through all my senses. For example, a client sits in front of me. All of a sudden, I feel as though the cuffs of my sweater are too tight. It's as if I'm wearing handcuffs. I look at that client, and I know this woman feels trapped in her relationship, imprisoned. I say out loud, your relationship is too stifling, and you feel imprisoned. Her face lights up. No one has ever expressed her truth in such words. It's all well and good to have the tactile sense revved up during a psychic session. Outside of work, I tend to wear all cotton, shoes that don't pinch my toes, and, as any good Minnesotan knows, many layers so that I can easily adjust my temperature. Meditation has also helped tremendously. When things are out of my control to change, for example, sitting in a cafe where the music is a bit too loud, and then a car drives by with its radio also blaring and deep bass vibrating, I can hardly stand it. So I center myself and breathe through it, knowing the agony will quickly pass. Boundaries and empathy are important in psychology. The gift is being able to truly understand someone else's pain. The key question is, how do you know when a problem is your own or when it belongs to others? When I'm in a busy cafe and I suddenly feel nauseous, I run through a mental list of the foods I've eaten recently, but then if I can't come up with a risky ingredient, for me, milk, wheat, onions, I casually glance around. Who is sitting within visual range who looks really sick? Am I picking up his symptoms? This is sometimes associated with a bad smell or a chill. To bring my aura closer to my physical body, thereby excluding other people's crap, I put my hand on top of my head and call my name silently. I also feel myself sitting on the chair, and I wiggle my feet on the ground. I then look around and make sure everything looks three-dimensional and full color. If not, my personal energy is still too spread out and intersecting with other people's. I inhale deeply, stretch, rub my hands together. I do a body check to see if I need water, food, or a bathroom break. Another syndrome is called temporal lobe epilepsy. A person with this brain syndrome sees every single detail in her life as having religious significance. It could be the pattern in the carpeting or the color of a business card. The gift is that God did create the world with meaning, and it's beautiful to perceive the divine hand in everything. The problem with temporal lobe epilepsy is that a person suffering from it can hardly move. The web of meaning sometimes entraps me. At the hardware store, how important is it to choose one green paint over another one? Will this vibration of green called forest dawn bring me happiness, whereas the other one called pine blush wear me down day by day? My symptoms are similar, not epilepsy, but living in a thick web of meaning. The key is to keep the significance perception in its proper time and place. Can you imagine having x-ray vision and seeing everyone naked all the time? Eww. I remind myself, you're not at work, turn it off. Attention deficit disorder is a cluster of symptoms that has to do with disorganized thinking. Most teachers and psychologists justifiably try to cure ADD because it makes children so difficult to deal with. For any parent of a child with ADD, or for any adult who struggles with this syndrome, my heart is with you. However, I'd like to offer a few radical notes. The gift is... 
by being completely open to any information in a session, any detail in my life or in my environment can be used to bring a message to a client. That's helpful. The jump from one item to another and the pattern making between the two are kind of ADD-like. It's one of the reasons I insist that the client creates the list of questions to impose order onto the flood of data. Teachers who try to organize a child with ADD often make him finish what he starts. My question is, is that so important? Maybe halfway through is enough. When we're working at an electrical, intuitive, telepathic level, I can receive half a name, and the client can identify whom the guides mean. Just a sketch is enough, just one detail. Total completion would be unnecessary and a drain on my energy. Children who skip from one topic to another, who don't finish a book, who leave a puzzle half-finished, maybe that's all they needed to do. Compare it to visiting a large museum, like the Louvre in Paris. Do you need to see every exhibit? Or can you just pick and choose the stuff you like? A few Modiglianis and the Code of Hammurabi. Some things in life, such as tax forms, need to be filled out all the way. But other things, like foreign languages, can be learned in smatterings and can still be effective. Don't force your kid to go against his nature. Use his nature to help him be the best person he can be. Maybe he's a psychic. Food allergies can certainly play a role in moods. I didn't realize I had candida, which leads to brain fog and depression, until I was in my 20s. Even then, it has taken me a long time to figure out which foods work for me, and an even longer time to stick to my good foods. For instance, I've decided that one cup of espresso before 9 a.m. orders my brain, and any coffee after that sends me into orbit. But you have to find your own recipes and ingredient lists. How does this relate to spiritual development? Being in a terrible mood and having irregular digestion means the body is in a state of struggle. If you think about a human as a house with three floors, the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual, a person eating the wrong food every day is going up and down the stairs between the physical floor and the emotional floor of the house and hardly has the energy to climb up to the spiritual floor. Food allergies should be taken into account when you're increasing conscious contact with your spirit guides or undertaking any religious and psychic development that moves you upstairs into a more spiritual life. The gift of food allergies is hard to see. I wish I could eat anything and everything at any time I wanted. It has taught me self-control, and it has taught me not to do things that harm myself, even when I don't feel the consequences immediately. 1987, St. Louis Park, Minnesota, Losing My Brother In June 1987, my brother Pat died, a month before his 17th birthday. He was second in the family, a year younger than I. He passed away one afternoon while taking a break from studying. My parents were grief-stricken. I felt terribly guilty because he and I had been fighting for three years. Years later, when I was home from Brazil, I found a research paper he had written 15 years prior to that. Here is a part of a story I wrote about that discovery. Patrick, Synchronicity Story, January 28, 2003. The day after Christmas at my parents' house, I found the notebook while digging through a closet. We had all used that closet at one time. Since I'm the oldest child, my stuff was near the bottom of the pile. 
I shoveled through strata of stained and holy sweaters, unpaired shoes, board game pieces, uncapped markers, concert ticket stubs, and crinkled posters. At about the Paleolithic layer, I discovered it. In left-handed ballpoint script, Pat had written a research report on Carl Jung's theory of synchronicity. I held the paper gently with my fingertips and lifted it to my nose, but it just smelled like wool. He died when he was almost 17. I was now a year older. He passed away in his sleep as if the part of the brain that says, lungs keep breathing and heart keep pumping, had just turned off. Even though an autopsy was done, we never found any exact medical cause. Each of us in the family has spent the years in our own ways trying to make meaning out of why he left when he did. Pat always shut himself away in his bedroom, bent over his desk, and studied with a combination of fervor and calculation. He replaced the overhead light with a higher wattage bulb, and he aimed the heavy metal table lamp directly at the geometric center of his study area. He arranged his library books on the left and his note cards on the right. He placed his radio alarm clock behind him, and he would time himself to see if he could finish each subject in less than a half an hour. Through the door, I heard him reciting Spanish verb conjugations. Once when he was 15, he asked my mom for a mini-fridge so he wouldn't have to take so many breaks. Not only to give Pat the respect he deserved, but also because I was interested in Jung, I sat down on a heavy black trash bag filled with clothing for the homeless shelter, and I read, Jung defines synchronicity as a meaningful coincidence. Pat started his paper with the story of Jung analyzing a patient who had been resisting treatment and thus only reluctantly described her dream of an Egyptian scarab beetle. Before the psychologist could speak, a tapping came at the window. Much to their shock, they found a European species of scarab. Jung later drew the conclusion that this meaningful coincidence and the symbolic significance of the scarab, rebirth, had much to do with the woman's subsequent recovery. I shifted around on the trash bag ottoman and it made a plastic squeaking noise. A draft in the window leaked December air into the room. Since I had stopped excavating, I was getting chilly, so I picked up the nearest cardigan, forest green mohair, missing two wooden buttons. When Pat died, the fights are what I remembered first. How he let my silver mylar 18th birthday balloon float away out of the car window. How I slammed the door in his hand. How he mocked my singing voice. How I made fun of him for not having a girlfriend. How he drove on the wrong side of the road to scare me. Those memories stuck with me for years, like TV theme songs. They were surface stories, painful, with plots that repeated. I couldn't dig any deeper. Right outside this bedroom, the hallway displays photos of us. A year after Pat died, when I came home from college and saw photos of him as a little boy, I couldn't see the five-year-old who used to ride big wheels with me who ran to get mom when I crashed into a tree. I didn't see the six-year-old who walked to school with me every morning, racing me to crack the thin puddle ice that had formed overnight. He was just a strange blonde kid who belonged to my parents, but not to me. I rolled off of the trash bag and stretched out on my back, atop the carpet of books and clothes, wiggling a little to make a soft indent like a nest. My head grazed a curling iron set, and my left leg had to bend so as not to knock over a 1930s globe. I would need to get some more bags and boxes from downstairs soon. From the ceiling hung a thin thread of spiderweb, shivering from the window draft. My therapist, 
from my 20s said siblings often don't grieve until they think their parents have stabilized. Mourning is a way of descending into the land of the dead while we are still alive. When parents watch a surviving sibling like me approach death, they can't handle it. They reach out and snatch her back from the abyss. To parents, it feels like losing another child. The sibling who is aching to mourn can't stand to imagine her parents suffering through another loss, even a temporary one. So the living sibling paces along the cliff's edge, subconsciously vigilant for the moment she will be permitted to plunge, to grieve. I felt safe there on the floor, protected by the soft, low wall of history and junk. The irony of the parent-sibling conflict is that neither side knows of this permission to grieve, neither the one who can grant it nor the one who needs it. Thus, parents sometimes resent their other children's apparently blasé attitude toward the one who has died, not realizing that this composure is a mask put on to protect everyone. For me, the hard part was realizing that the permission would never come, can never come. Parents simply do not end their grieving process, and therefore my mourning had to take place concurrently. Sometimes, siblings move away and mourn elsewhere, which is what I have done, living in five different countries over the past 15 years. Sometimes, mourning siblings wear the mask of Persephone and visit the netherworld in secret through religion or art or drinking or drugs or other socially sanctioned risks that feel like death. Since my brother died, I have made several excursions to the land of the dead. Luckily, I have never misplaced the second half of my round-trip ticket. Patrick's Synchronicity Story Part 2 In dreams, Pat has visited me a couple of times. He shows up during the kind of heavy, vivid somnolence from which you remember every detail drenched in technicolor. In 1988, a year and a half after he had died, I was at university and deeply depressed, waking only for classes and meals. During a malarial afternoon nap, I dreamed that Pat arrived on campus with two friends. Could they have been angels? They were glowing, radioactive. In Pat's hand, he held a Star Wars lightsaber, just like the ones we used to battle with. And with it, he cut away a stone from the foundation of a college building. Pat withdrew a box of paper scrolls and let me choose one. He disappeared, leaving me to unfurl it. In black crayon, in the handwriting he had used in third grade, he had written the word don't at the top of the page and at the bottom, 20C. In the middle, he had drawn stacks of semi-truck tires with X's drawn in to show the treads. I awoke, not understanding the dream. Hearing the six o'clock bells toll from the college clock tower, I staggered up the sidewalk toward the cafeteria. Blinded by sleep, I smashed into a friend who immediately embraced me probably because I looked so wild-haired and bewildered. Before explaining the rest of the story, I got Pat's message in a flash and cried out, It's 1988, right? My friend nodded. I've got 12 years left. Don't tire of the 20th century. He's telling me to hold on. Patrick's Synchronicity Story Part 3 Eventually, I filled five trash bags and two cardboard boxes with old stuff of mine to be donated. I left Pat's notebook on a shelf with the mixture of our things and his, and I told Mom and Dad about the research paper so that they could read it when they wanted to. A few weeks after visiting my parents in 2003, I headed back to my apartment in Brazil. January was a verdant jungle. My bougainvillea vine had burst into magenta fireworks. 
I undertook a 10-day silent retreat to learn a Buddhist meditation technique called Vipassana. The retreat was held in a rustic mountain resort outside of Rio de Janeiro, where the air was piney. It rained almost the whole 10 days, which made concentrating easier. In a large wooden hall, like at a scout camp, we sat on pillows, in rows, and focused on our breathing. We kept our eyes closed and maintained a noble silence. When we started in one position, we didn't move for an hour. It was a huge challenge. My legs ached, my back burned, but at the end of each session in which I had managed to keep still, I felt a tremendous sense of accomplishment. We took hour-long breaks to stretch and walk, although we refrained from speaking or making eye contact with each other. I loved to stroll in the rain, with an umbrella or without. The mineral-rich roads had been carved out of red clay, and mica sparkled in the brick-colored rivulets. Near the top of a hill, a chunk of white crystal emerged from the road. Every day when I walked there, I looked for it, to see if the rain was washing it out of the mud, a metaphor for my own experience on the retreat. On the morning of the seventh day, I had been sitting for about 45 minutes in the flow of the meditation, when my wave was interrupted by a tiny scratching on my hands, folded in front of me as if in prayer. I will not open my eyes, I vowed. It scratched at my finger again. It was something alive. What if it bit me? Frustrated, I cracked open my eyelids. Right in front of me sat a big, black beetle, a scarab, a message from Pat. He had come to say hello. I stared in awe at the beetle and thanked it. Then I gently whisked it away from my cushion and it crawled away unhurt toward the open door. In the quiet of the meditation room, filled with people breathing out peace, the time had returned for me to be friends with my brother. 1987 to 1991, Irving, Texas, University as a Mystery School. I attended the University of Dallas, Texas. As Minnesota meets the northern borders of the United States and Canada, so Texas borders Mexico in the south. The two places are opposite in other ways, too. Traditional Minnesotans like their lifestyle small and humble, like a log cabin that sits invisibly among the trees in the forest. In Texas, the bigger the better, and gigantic houses, as well as hairstyles, mean you've got a sense of pride. Divine Providence must have influenced my decision, since at that time the University of Dallas, or UD, was a virtually unknown institution with only 975 students. It was perfect for me. UD is a Roman Catholic four-year university with a graduate school, whose undergraduate program specializes in the great books, meaning all students read the classics of Western civilization for the first two years, even if they become physics majors, like my brother Sean and my sister Megan, who both followed me south later. Best of all, UD sends its sophomore students to Rome, Italy, for a semester to study the heart of Western civilization. And that term includes 10 days in Greece and also a rail pass to explore all of Europe on the weekends. Because of my French classes and because I was so sick of ordinariness, traveling across Europe and delving into history seemed like the perfect life. Little did I know of the program before I began, and little did I understand its impact on me while I was there. Twenty years later, I have some inkling of how much UD taught me. How to think, how to argue, how to speak, how to write, how to persevere, and how to interact with greatness, both in books and professors. 
In ancient times, sages ran mystery schools where adepts could attain holy knowledge. Sanctuaries of learning, these mystery schools had homes in Greece, Egypt, India, Babylon, and perhaps also in Mali and Ethiopia too. A student learned not only academic subjects, but also how to pray, how to meditate, how to make medicines, how to heal. University of Dallas was a mystery school for me, but at the time I didn't see the holiness, just the opportunity to get good grades. And socialize. I was so happy to have found a real peer group that I reveled. Thank God I retained some of the information and the way to learn I acquired there, despite how much I succumbed to the temptations of youth. Those temptations were both physical and spiritual. In the autumn of 1987, I wandered into a residence hall room with classmates enjoying a beer fest. We bought cases of the cheapest, most watered-down beer ever brewed with our fake ID cards since we were still under 21. That room was dark and crowded and smelled of cigarettes, but it was still early evening, so people lounged about and chatted. The guys who lived there had a Ouija board. Nobody knew how it worked, but I knew what it was from reading about it back in Minneapolis. I said, let me try. I convinced a girl to place her fingers on the palm-sized plastic indicator disc so it would slide around on the alphabet board and spell out messages. I had never tried it, but I made like I was a big expert. That was the spiritual temptation, alleging expertise. Looking around, I saw 15 people sitting there, a range of nervous and skeptical, waiting to see what would happen. The guys turned off the music. I took a deep breath. The first thing I asked was, if there is a presence in the room, please give us a sign. At that very moment, the light bulb in the desk lamp not only went out, it exploded with a boom and shattered glass all over the desk. We all screamed and ran. We didn't ask the Ouija board any more questions. That's one of the reasons why a number of people called me Wendy the Little Witch from the Casper the Ghost cartoon. At university, everybody has some nickname. But I wasn't one of those people who dressed in black like a goth or studied Wicca. I was a peacenik, hippie chick who grooved on English literature. As the semesters spun on, my angels were definitely taking good care of me, although I was not taking good care of myself, eating only pizza, drinking cappuccinos, beer, smoking cigarettes. I experienced intense depressions, locked myself in my room, and cried and slept for 24 hours at a time. 1989, Rome, Italy. When in Rome, Rome through Europe. In the spring of 1989, I studied in Rome. I stayed in a room with two other girls on the University of Dallas campus of 80 students, located about 45 minutes from town, on the grounds of a ruined mansion. They said that the mistress of Mussolini had lived there. Cypress trees craned up into the late winter sky. We built bonfires in the ruins, kissed, drank the Italian version of the cheapest beer brewed. The curriculum centered on the cradles of Western civilization, Rome and Greece. We studied art history and toured the actual churches and temples. We studied drama and went to the original amphitheaters. We studied theology and went to the Vatican. Thus, this semester was the most like a mystery school. At the Vatican, UD arranges for the students to attend an audience with the Pope, John Paul II. Nowadays, the students can see the Pope in small groups, 30 to 50 people. But when I went, the hall was filled with about 3,000 people. From the stage, the Pope spoke to us in several languages, and then he came down into the crowds and walked among us, shaking hands. As he came closer to my section, the people around me surged forward and sandwiched me, and yet somehow I found myself lifted to the front of the group. The Pope maintained an incredible sense of presence despite the uproar. He took each person's hand in his, smiled, 
and made eye contact. When he reached out and held my hand, he looked into my eyes, and that moment lasted a long time. He looked deep into my heart, really. I'll never forget what he said, either. Thank you. It struck me as a beautiful thing to say, and unexpected. It inspired me. Maybe he was thanking me for what I had not yet done, but would do for God. A month or so later, the whole group of students went to Greece. These ten days were filled with intense learning. Every day we saw new sights and heard the stories and myths that make them world famous. Mount Olympus, for example, where the Olympics began. Our teachers made the lectures fun for us, and they held a foot race in the field there. Spring was arriving, and the grass held tiny flower buds. The most important moment for me during the Greece tour was visiting the site of the Oracle of Delphi. I had heard of it before, and I knew that the seers would inhale gases from the crevices and then foretell the future. As I walked up to the site, I started to go into a light trance state. I sat on the rocks and held my hand over the cracks, wafting the air toward my face. I wanted to stay there for hours. I knew it was the right place for me. That afternoon, I went back to our guest house and fell into a deep sleep for hours. At other times, I just felt like a tourist. The professors would drag us to yet another holy place, and all I wanted to do was go have a cappuccino. Sometimes too much of a good thing is too much. I also had yet to learn to respect the sacredness of traditions not my own. When I saw signs forbidding tourists from wearing shorts inside churches, I understood. But why bother in a Greek temple? That stuff's not real. Somehow the oracle at Delphi made sense to me, and I could perceive a connection or perhaps a practical application, but the myths were just empty stories. After Greece, our Eurail passes activated, and every weekend we took off in pairs or small groups to explore Europe. Leaving Thursday night and returning Monday morning, sleeping on the trains to save hotel money, and subsisting on baguettes and cheese, I backpacked through 13 countries. The highlight was Eastern Europe. I adored Budapest for its same-but-differentness. Our meager dollars went a long way, and we dined on borscht, meatballs, and thick brown bread on a houseboat on the Danube, where the pianist played so brilliantly that I walked over to compliment him, only to discover he had played for my heroine from 1976, the Olympic Romanian gymnast Nadia Comaneci. Both Hungary and Yugoslavia unfolded for me like love letters found in a second-hand book. I was surprised how much I felt a pull toward the East. Later that semester, back in Rome, I was asleep one night in my dorm room. We'd had a day full of lectures on poetry and architecture. I suddenly found myself completely awake. Through the open shutters, the full moon beamed in the window, and the whole room was alight. I had a strong urge to kneel down beside my bed. I didn't usually pray like that. I usually just said a few words as I was falling asleep. But this feeling was a must. As I knelt there, I put my hands together. I heard a loud voice, as if it were coming in from the window. The voice said one word, teach. I understood this was the voice of God. I reeled from the acknowledgement, but then I went straight for my main concern and shot out some questions about my love life, but received no answer. The line had already gone down. I did take the advice, changed my major, and became a teacher after graduating. 1990 to 1991, Irving, Texas. Last lesson, silence. In my last year of university, I became particularly Catholic. I attended Mass weekly and sometimes daily. Luckily, living at UD made that practice easy. A girl I knew, Cecilia, invited me to a weekend silent retreat for women, where the priest gave a seminar called 
How much time do you spend talking to God? It was a question I had not considered, and it helped me reset my priorities. At that moment, I was in love, as usual. But as was also usual, I was putting all my emotional energy into a relationship that didn't have much of a future, whereas my relationship with God was eternal. That retreat was also my first experience with silence, and I found not talking such a great blessing that I was sorry when the weekend came to an end.